So we're in 1 Samuel 30. Now, so I was thinking about this passage. It brought me back to a time. I remember when my friend and I realized that we were lost in the woods. The, the sun had basically just fallen below the horizon. And the only thing that we had with us at the time was a little keychain flashlight, which was flickering in and out because he hadn't changed the battery for quite some time. How did we get here? Well, it began with a fun-filled college trip of 20 or so of us going out. We we're on a camping trip, and we're in the woods of West Virginia. A group of us decide that we're going to follow a trail and go trail walking. Well, me and my friend, who have, let me just tell you, zero experience in the woods, decide that we're going to go bushwhacking. Now, if you don't know what bushwhacking is, bushwhacking is where you just kind of set off on your own into the woods and explore. 20 minutes into our bushwhacking experience, the sun is coming down, and we lose all sense of orientation. Has anyone else here been lost in the woods before? You don't want to admit it, do you? Well, I've been lost in the woods, and I'll tell you, being lost in the woods is disorienting, and it's a fearful experience, because once you lose that sense of direction, finding landmarks, finding your way back, everything looking the same, uh, you start wondering, am I ever going to leave this place? We started having a conversation like, is this cave a good place to sleep? Should we hide under this bush and wait for the sun to come out? Well, Thank the Lord, after a couple of hours of searching, we did find the trail again, and we made our way back to camp. Now, I find it interesting that Scripture, when it talks about being lost, it uses that kind of terminology to talk about the spiritual condition of a person who doesn't have Christ. They're lost. So there's no sense of direction no orientation when it comes to the things of the Lord. That person has no way of finding their way without, of course, the gospel message, as the Bible tells us. I also think that you can become lost as a believer, though. Now, I'm not talking about that in the sense of your salvation. As you know here, uh, we believe that when a person has trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they are secure in their salvation, but a believer can become very lost nonetheless. We can venture off into what I would call a spiritual bushwhacking journey. We can become disobedient to God's ways and His purposes for our lives. We can lose all sense of spiritual direction. One author, she says this, of the analysis of how a Christian enters into this. She says, spiritual decay is a gradual process. If it came as a splash of cold water in the face on a sweltering day, we'd recognize it for what it is. But Satan is sly, and his tactics are subtle. Even as the onslaught of many diseases can be insidious, the wasting away that occurs in the heart of the backslider may be nearly imperceptible. Now that word, backslider, that's an old term that preachers used to use talking about this person who's become spiritually lost as a believer. Now here are some questions that might help us to face the issue squarely. 
If you're thinking about your own life, if you're thinking about your own journey with the Lord, maybe you've been spiritually bushwhacking and you didn't even know it. So think of these questions. Does God feel distant or removed from your life right now? When was the last time you opened your Bible? And I mean, opened it and really felt a sense of connection with the Lord. When was the last time you prayed? Are you in healthy connection with the people of God? Are you serving with a glad heart for God's purposes? Maybe even as you think about those questions, you're coming to some type of realization. Maybe I've been spiritually bushwhacking. Now, I'm not saying that any one of those questions will lead you to that answer. It's multiple factors that tend to lead us in that direction. But you're going to find, if you're looking at those questions and you're sensing that there's some spiritual distance from the Lord, that our text, 1 Samuel 30, applies to you directly this morning. And, And maybe you're saying, I'm good with the Lord right now. Well, let me tell you, any one of us can go spiritual bushwhacking, so you need to tuck this away for later when you find yourself in that place. You see, David has been spiritual bushwhacking for nearly 16 months The text says that he went over to Gath. The verb, went over, is spiritually significant. It means that he's left the promised land. He's he's disconnected from God. He's lying. He's slaughtering as he goes into these raids. He's almost falling susceptible to joining the ranks of Akish. So the question we're going to answer this morning is, how do I come back to God? How do I find my way back? Well, let me summarize what's happened from chapter 27 through 30. We're kind of gliding over a couple of chapters here. If you look at chapter 28, that takes us back into the world of Saul, and Saul is very fearful right now. He is about to engage in battle with the Philistines, and you notice that in Saul's life, the more disobedient he becomes, the less he receives guidance from the Lord. At this point, the tap is cut off. He doesn't hear anything from God. And in his fear and desperation, he visits a medium of Endor, a witch who supposedly has connection with the dead and can bring messages of the dead to the living. And so he asks this witch of Endor to conjure up Samuel, his spiritual mentor who has now departed. Well, she engages in the practice, and much to her surprise, someone actually arrives. Uh, Samuel appears. Now, this is kind of like the Bible's tongue-in-cheek way of saying that she had nothing to do with this appearing. This is from the Lord. I think that her practice as a medium was simply something that she would do to make some money, and lo and behold, Samuel actually shows up. He tells Saul, you're going to die on the battlefield. And he's terrified. Then the story jumps over to chapter 29, and there in chapter 29, the Philistines are approaching Israel for war, and David, as he's been on this wandering experience, he finds himself at the rear of the army of the Philistines, about to go and engage with his own people, Israel. But then suddenly, The generals of the Philistines, well, they say, we don't want David going with us. We think he's going to turn on us. 
So after being dismissed from the army, David and his men, they make their way back to Ziklag. Now you remember, that's his town that he's been living in as he's over in the Philistine territory. We come now to chapter 30. Now the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, he uses this graphic illustration in Amos 5.19. He pictures a man in desperation and the man's fleeing from a lion and then as he's fleeing from the lion, he meets a bear. Now talk about a bad day. You escape one bad event, you show up, there's a bear. Well, this man is so lucky that he escapes a lion, he escapes a bear, and then he goes home. And he's exhausted, he's panting, he's leaning against the wall, and out comes a poisonous snake and bites the man in the ankle. He just can't catch a break. And I'll tell you, that picture is a picture of David up to this point in chapter 30. He's escaped the lion. He's gotten away from Saul. He's escaped the bear. He didn't have to march with a kish against the generals. But now he arrives at Ziklag and the snake bites. Let's read the first six verses. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. The people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. Now, I want to suggest that where David is right now is a place that may be familiar to some of us. We call it rock bottom. I mean, David has nothing and no one else to blame for his situation right now other than himself. After all, who was it that decided to cross over into Philistine territory? Who was it that led the people to leave Ziklag and not leave people behind to protect their home place. And we find him completely demoralized, his men completely demoralized, and they begin by weeping, but then some of the men, they want their pound of flesh. And they're looking at David. He's the leader. He's responsible for this. If you know what I'm talking about, if you've been at rock bottom, you also come to the realization that this is the very place that God tends to use to grab hold of our attention. Have you been there before? I have. I remember when I was 18 years old, I mean, I was going through a season of my life of rebellion against the Lord, my own spiritual wandering in Gath, doing things my way for my reasons, for my purposes. And I got to tell you, just like David, I evaded the lion, I went to the bear, and then I got bit by the snake. It happens. 
And when you're in this place called rock bottom, you begin to really question yourself. You begin to question God and say, God, would you ever take me back? I mean, I knew the right things to do. I knew what I was supposed to do, but I've been disappointing you for quite a long time. And you feel ashamed, not only because you've disappointed God, but because you've also disappointed yourself. Let me just say this. If you've been at rock bottom, sometimes your worst critic is yourself. Sometimes the last person willing to forgive you is you. So David is in this place called rock bottom. But it's here in this text that I want something to ring loud and clear for you. And it's this, that God always provides a way back. Always. Now, spiritually speaking, we call the process repentance. Repentance is like me finding that trail in the dark. It's a, it's a pathway forward. It's God's way of leading you to change your thinking and change your feelings within your heart and even to change your behavior, which ultimately results in a life change, a change of trajectory. Repentance means that you are heading in the wrong direction and you've turned now and you're heading in the right direction. And that's just what we're going to see in David's story. In fact, I want to read the next part from in this story in chapter 30 because here you're going to see just a, a real turnaround in David's life. We'll pick up at verse 6, and then we're going to draw some implications from this. So the text says that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Now that's significant right there, church. I hope you understand that it means we're going to get the the old David back, the David that's serious about the things of the Lord, the man after God's own heart. Verse 7, and David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue so David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev and the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will kill me, will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. 
And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and he'd rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought all back. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Let's stop there. Now we're going to pull out, extrapolate certain steps back in this process called repentance from this story. And the first one I want you to see, step number one, is to reorient yourself in the Lord. The key turning point in David's experience was there at verse 6. The text says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You see what's happening there. If you look at the story from chapter 27 to chapter 30, you may have noticed that God is absent from David's life. We don't hear anything of God. In fact, the only mention of God in chapter 29 is almost a, a token expression of God from the lips of the king, Achish. No mention from David's mouth, no mention of the Lord working behind the scenes. But here now in verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, what does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord? Notice that strengthening yourself in the Lord begins with recognizing that God is a personal God. It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. His God. If you think about David's situation for a minute, why does it matter that, that God is a, a personal God, that God is with us? Well, Think about all that David's lost right now. He's lost his home. He's lost his possessions. He's lost his family. And I suggest he's lost his relationships with the people that he had had in Israel before he had come over into Philistine territory. But of all the things that he's lost, the text makes it very loud and clear to us that he has not lost the Lord. See, that's the one thing that can never be taken away from you no matter what happens in your life. The Lord is my shepherd. 
no matter my circumstances. He's with me. He's walking with me. Now, as he's strengthening himself in the Lord, what do you think David's focusing on right now? Text doesn't tell us, but I promise you that he's going back to the promises of God and he's thinking on the character of God. Do you believe that God is a God of mercy? Do you? Well, if you do, then you can turn to this Lord even when you've been away from him. And of course, we see David do this. Let's look at a second step. Step number two, allow the Lord to guide your steps. That's verses seven and eight. One of my favorite phrases in the book of 1 Samuel is, bring me the ephod. I love that expression in this book. In fact, I want to get it like tattooed on my back. I'm just kidding. I'll get it on my wall somewhere. I just, I want that as a, a visual reminder that we always need God's guidance. David at his best always says, bring me the ephod. I need direct revelation from God. I need God to speak. No, no, don't get so hung up on the mechanics of this ephod thing. We, we really aren't told from the Bible how this worked or how they got direct revelation. In fact, I think the Bible intentionally does that so that we don't focus on that and we focus more on the reality that God's speaking and when God speaks, his people should listen. So as a believer today, I don't have the ephod, I don't have a biathar, but I do have a far more profound form of revelation. I have the word of God. And as you start walking with God and you start opening this Bible, you realize that God intends to meet with you daily, to speak to your heart, and that you have a much, much better priest than Abiathar, Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And then in verse 16, it goes on to say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence. You can talk to Jesus daily that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now for you, if you're going to get this kind of guidance and direction in your life, guess what God needs? He needs your attention. He needs your attention. We live in a, an age of distracted attention. We don't give God our attention. But how are we to hear messages of guidance if unless we are giving God our devoted attention? Well, he's got David's attention right now, doesn't he? And as he get, has David's attention, notice that David starts receiving revelation. This is what I want you to do, which leads us into our third step. Obey God's voice and marvel at his leading. Now, I love how David is given a direction to act right away. Oftentimes, when, when people have been spiritually bushwhacking, they, they wonder if they could be of any use to the Lord when they determine that they're going to reorient their lives back to the Lord. But what I see here in this text is that God is not a God of timeouts. 
If you've been walking away from him, he doesn't say, no, you need to sit in the corner over there and stare at the wall and think about what you did. He doesn't place you there. He doesn't want you to go through some process of penitence, which, by the way, can be very arbitrary. You know, we kind of invent those things, don't we? We think, you know, I only did this amount of bad, so I don't have to do that much for my penitence, but I did this amount of bad over here, so I've really got to walk through a long period of penitence. Look at Scripture. Show me where God does that. I don't see it anywhere. David's been wandering for 16 months. He goes to the Lord. The Lord says, move. David goes. I'm thinking of my own life. I told you that for a season, I had wandered. You know what is remarkable to me in retrospect as the Lord called me back into repentance? The night that I told the Lord that I'm done with that, that I'm going to start following you, is the same night that I received my call to ministry. Think about Peter in John chapter 21. Now, Peter, you want to talk about someone who really would disappoint us spiritually, someone who walked with Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, and then denied him three times? And as Jesus is restoring Peter, what does he say? He asks him three times, do you love me? Peter says, of course, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says, Get back into ministry. Feed my sheep. God is not a God of sidelines. And when you're ready to walk with him, he's ready to call you into action. And what we see is, as David gets into action, now the Lord gives him marvelous direction along the way. Think about the situation here. They show up on the scene at Ziklag. Everything's burned to the ground Do you think David has any idea who these raiders are or where these raiders have gone or what direction or which way? Is it like, did raiders back in this time leave calling cards and say, yes, we are the Amalekites and we have just decimated your town and and if you would like to find us, you can just follow this GPS coordinates right to where we are. Of course they didn't do it like that. They're raiders. They're nomads. They could disappear into the landscape and no one would ever know where they were. So the Lord tells David to go and David has no idea which direction he's going. That's why we shouldn't just gloss over verse 11. (laughs) They found an Egyptian in the open country. Hmm, I wonder what's happening here. It doesn't seem like this discovery is an optional luxury. You know, like when you're lost and you're driving down the street and you, you just don't know where the last few turns are, so you go to a gas station if you're not a guy with too much pride and you ask for the final directions. That's an optional luxury, but this is an absolute necessity, right? If they don't find the Egyptian, they have no idea who's done this. Which leads us to another point about God. This is God's providence at work. And what we learned from this is that God's providence in your life is essential. It's essential. I want to suggest that providence is a normative means by which God leads you. It's often subtle. 
It can be overlooked, but it's essential. Can you look back in your life and see that God structured things in such a way that he set things up in such a way that as you look back, there's no other way, no other explanation other than God did that? God showed up? Del Ralph Davis, a commentator, he says, as you ponder the ground you've traveled, the murky stuff the Lord has carried you through, the twists and turns of your life, can you not see glimpses of silent mercy or quiet care? It's all over the place. If you look, in fact, as we see the story unfold more, there's more of God's providence at work It tells us that the Egyptian leads David to the raiders, and verse 16 says this, and when he had taken him down, behold, now pause there for a second, behold is always a significant word in the Bible. It's cueing us into the reality that God is behind the scenes working right now, right? Behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing. They thought they had gotten away free and clear, so these guys just break out partying everywhere. Because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. Now, did David just happen to catch them off guard? I don't think so. And and did it just happen that in verse 18, they recover everything? Verse 19, Nothing of what was taken was missing. Is this just coincidence? Is this just dumb luck? No. Luck has nothing to do with it. God's ways are mysterious, but they're always evident if you will open your eyes and look. Let's look at a fourth step. The fourth step is to focus on others. You'll notice that when David and his men return, that 200 men had stayed behind because they were so exhausted they couldn't pursue the Amalekites any longer. And the text says in verses 21 to 24 that wicked and worthless fellows rose up. Now, how would you like that to be your label in the Bible? Here, that, that label, worthless, it's used multiple times in 1 Samuel, and it means that a person is showing contempt for the ways of God. Now, listen to David's speech. I think it's really brilliant, verses 23 to 24. He says, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. Now, at the heart of this speech, I see this theological truth where David is saying, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given you. So the greed and the selfishness of these worthless fellows, it's entirely unacceptable with what we could only say is a gift from God. Did they make the Egyptian manifest? 
did they cause the Amalekites to spread themselves out and be partying everywhere to where they could just kind of arrive on the scene and take everything back easily? Of course not. It was God who did all of those things. And think about our own possessions and think about our own giftedness in life and think about everything that has taken shape up to this point in your life. Did you really do that? Of course not. It's God's gift. So David's theology is rooted in the pure grace of God. And every time you come to this concept of generosity in the Bible, biblical generosity, a value that we've been adopting as a church for quite some time, you come to the realization that it's only by grace that you have what you have, therefore you should not be tight-fisted with it. I think we're discovering this as a church. We've been journeying for a couple of years now. We've been opening our hands more. We've been seeing that God wants us to be this kind of people because this is how you become that tower on the hill that shines the light forth in the community where you live. Think about all of those needs around us and Lynn's sharing about those needs around us. There's downtrodden people, broken-hearted people, poor, hurting. And when you start interfacing with these people, you come to realize that it's, it's bigger than just financial considerations. It's much bigger than that. It also requires investment of your mind and your heart and your time to be involved in their lives. I love what Psalm 41 says. One says, it says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. One commentator says this, the word consider is striking in that it is usually described, it usually describes the practical wisdom of the man of affairs, and so it implies giving careful thought to a person's situation, rather than just perfunctory help. And here's why not everyone wants to do this. The reason people want to just kind of give a, a dollar at the grocery store as opposed to considering the poor is because considering is a personal investment of time and emotional energy and physical energy. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It's costly. Why? Because extending generosity and mercy to others means that some of the person's burden slides over to the helper. And that's costly, and that's hard. But just think about the gospel for a minute. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus inconvenienced himself. He stepped out of eternity. He took on flesh. He became one of us. And Jesus sacrificed himself. He shed his precious blood on the cross so that we could find our way back to God. So if we're going to be like God, if we're going to be like Christ, then we have to be sacrificial in this sort of way. And I love that example from David. David's doing that right here in this text. And I come to this realization. You know that God's grabbed hold of your heart and truly grabbed hold of it when you start looking outward and focusing on others. It's true. Let's look at one final step 
I'm going to wrap this up quickly for you. But the final step is reconnecting with the people of God. You look at verse 25, you see that David takes some of the gifts of the spoil and he sends it to the elders of Judah. Now, I sense that this is because David has been out of the land, he's been away, and part of what happens when you disconnect with God is you also tend to disconnect from God's people. Those two things just seem to go hand in hand for whatever reason. So here you see David reconnecting with the people of God. He's saying, I'm coming back, I'm one of you, I'm with you. And I want to just say this quickly. If you've disconnected from the people of God, that is a huge step in your path of repentance is reconnecting, finding a faith family, journeying with people who are on the same journey as you are. So as we close, I hope you feel encouraged to learn that God is not a sideline God, that if you're wanting to find a way back to him, he's always got the way open to you. And we tend to make that way a lot more difficult than God does. He wants your heart. He wants your will. He wants you to follow him. And as you do that, he gives you a purpose. He calls you to focus on others. And he reconnects you with his people. Now, the thing I love about these stories in the Bible, like David and others, is they show us that God's people are not perfect. I don't know about you, but I had this like ideal of David in my mind when I first started walking with the Lord. I was like, I could never be like that guy. I mean, this guy's flawless. He's never done anything wrong except for that one time with Bathsheba. But otherwise, never anything wrong. But listen to what this commentator says. He says, the Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox. Okay, as you start reading the Bible more and more, connecting with the heart of God in the Bible, you come to the realization that even the so-called best of them were people just like you and me, ordinary people that God called out from being a shepherd boy. He said, this is the man after my heart and I will make him king. And he is working those same purposes out in your life. And it's only and ever always by his grace, not because of your talent, not because of your skills, not because you're David, ruddy and handsome or whatever else, but because of his grace, because of who he is, because of his character. I love what John Newton said, and he captured the words of grace probably better than anyone so long ago. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I hope to be. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, that's the Bible in a nutshell, right there. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we thank you that we've seen in your word this morning that you are not a sidelining God, but you are a God who is leading and working and and bringing about your purposes in our life. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. Because without that, Lord, without your leadership and your direction, we're all just spiritually bushwhacking. We're lost in the dark. You've shined the light in our life 
through Christ. You've given us a way back. And you also have given us a purpose that extends beyond just our own little world, a purpose to focus on others, to be connected with your people, to do things your way. I pray for each one here, Lord. I ask that if anyone's been spiritually bushwhacking, that today is the day where they strengthen themselves in the Lord, their God. We love you, Lord, and we want to do what, it, what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.